Chapter 7 Outsmarting Yourself in the Heart of Darkness Self-control is more indispensable than gunpowder. Henry Morton Stanley In 1887, Henry Morton Stanley went up the Congo River and inadvertently started a disastrous experiment. This was long after his first journey deep into Africa as a journalist in 1871, when he'd become famous by finding a Scottish missionary and reporting the first words of their encounter. Dr. Livingston, I presume? Now, at age 46, Stanley was a veteran explorer leading his third African expedition. As he headed into an uncharted expanse of rainforest, he left part of the expedition behind in a riverside camp to await further supplies. The leaders of this rear column, who came from some of the most prominent families in Britain, proceeded to become an international disgrace. Those men, along with a British soldier and doctor who were left in charge of a fort along the route, lost control once Stanley was no longer there to command them. They refused medical treatment to sick natives and allowed Africans under their command to perish needlessly from disease and poisonous food. They kidnapped and bought young African women to keep as sex slaves. When one of the very young concubines cried to be returned to her mother and father, she was ignored. When another escaped, she was retrieved and trussed to prevent another escape. The British commander of the fort savagely beat and maimed Africans, sometimes stabbing them with a sharp steel cane, sometimes ordering men to be shot or flogged almost to death for trivial offenses. Most of his officers raised no objection. When some pygmies living near the British fort, a mother and several children, were caught stealing food, parts of their ears were cut off. Other thieves were shot and decapitated so that their skulls could be displayed as warnings outside the fort. One of the officers in the rear column, a naturalist who was an heir to the Jameson whiskey fortune, paid for an 11-year-old girl to be killed and eaten by cannibals while he made sketches of the ritual. At this point, Joseph Conrad was just about to embark on his own journey up the Congo, and it would be another decade before he created Kurtz, the savage imperialist in Heart of Darkness, who lacked restraint in the gratification of his various lusts because he was hollow at the core, and the wilderness found him out. But the perils of the African wilderness already seemed quite clear to many Europeans once they read the non-fiction stories from Stanley's rear column. Critics called for an end to such expeditions, and it was the last of its kind, much to Stanley's dismay. He joined in the condemnation of his men's behavior, and he certainly appreciated the dangers of the wilderness, but he didn't regard them as insuperable. For while the rear column was going berserk, Stanley was maintaining discipline in a much wilder setting. He and the forward portion of the expedition spent months struggling to find a way through the dense Ituri rainforest. They suffered through torrential rains and waist-deep mud while fending off incessant swarms of stinging flies and biting ants. They were weakened by continual hunger, crippled by festering sores and ulcers, incapacitated by malaria and dysentery. They were maimed and killed and sometimes eaten by natives who attacked them with poisoned arrows and spears. 
At one point, several people were dying daily of disease and starvation. Of those who started with Stanley on this trek into darkest Africa, as he called that sunless expanse of jungle, fewer than one in three emerged with him. You would be hard-pressed to name any explorer in history who endured such sustained misery and terror so deep in the wilderness. Perhaps the only expedition as grueling was the previous transcontinental journey by Stanley that established the sources of the Nile and the Congo rivers. Yet Stanley persevered through all the travails, year after year, expedition after expedition. His European companions marveled at his strength of will. Africans called him Bula Matari, breaker of rocks. The African aides and porters who survived his expeditions went on to enlist again and again with him, admiring him not just for his hard work and resolve, but also for his kindness and equanimity under hellish conditions. While others blamed the wilderness for turning men into savages, Stanley said he benefited from it. For myself, I lay no claim to any exceptional fineness of nature. But I say, beginning life as a rough, ill-educated, impatient man, I have found my schooling in these very African experiences, which are now said by some to be in themselves detrimental to European character. What did that schooling teach him? Why didn't the wilderness ever find him out? In his day, Stanley's feats enthralled the public and awed artists and intellectuals. Mark Twain predicted that Stanley would be almost the only one of his contemporaries to remain famous a century later. When I contrast what I have achieved in my measurably brief life with what Stanley has achieved in his possibly briefer one, Twain observed, the effect is to sweep utterly away the ten-story edifice of my own self-appreciation and leave nothing behind but the cellar. Anton Chekhov declared that one Stanley was worth a dozen schools and a hundred good books. The Russian writer saw Stanley's stubborn, invincible striving toward a certain goal, no matter what the privations, dangers, and temptations for personal happiness, as personifying the highest moral strength. But the establishment in Britain and much of Europe was always leery of this brash newspaperman from America, and there were jealous rivals eager to fault his exploration tactics, particularly after the scandal of the rear column. In the ensuing century, his reputation plummeted as biographers and historians criticized his expeditions and his association in the early 1880s with King Leopold II, the profiteering Belgian monarch whose ivory traders would later provide the direct inspiration for Heart of Darkness. As colonialism declined and Victorian character-building lost favor, Stanley came to seem less like a paragon of self-control and more like a selfish control freak. He was depicted as a brutal exploiter, a ruthless imperialist who hacked and shot his way across Africa. This cruel conquistador was often contrasted with the saintly Dr. Livingston the solitary traveler who crossed the continent selflessly, looking for souls to save. But recently, yet another Stanley has emerged, a much more intriguing one for modern audiences than either the dauntless hero or the ruthless control freak. This explorer prevailed in the wilderness not by selfishness, not because his will was indomitable, but because he appreciated its limitations 
and use long-term strategies that psychologists are now beginning to understand. This new version of Stanley was found, appropriately enough, by Dr. Livingston's biographer, Tim Geel, a British novelist and expert on Victorian obsessives. From researching David Livingston's life, Geel was suspicious of the conventional Livingston-Stanley dichotomy. When thousands of Stanley's letters and papers were unsealed in the past decade, Geel drew on them to produce a revisionist tour de force. Stanley, The Impossible Life of Africa's Greatest Explorer. The acclaimed biography depicts a deeply flawed character who seems all the more brave and humane for his mixture of ambition and insecurity, virtue and fraud. His self-control in the wilderness becomes even more remarkable considering the secrets he was hiding at his core. The Empathy Gap If self-control is partly a hereditary trait, which seems likely, then Stanley began his life with the genetic odds against him. He was born in Wales to an unmarried 18-year-old woman who went on to have four other illegitimate children by at least two other men. He never knew his father. His mother promptly abandoned him to her father, who cared for him until he died when the boy was six. Another family took him in briefly, but then one of the boy's new guardians took him on a journey. Told he was going to his aunt's home, the confused boy instead ended up inside a large stone building. It was a workhouse, and the adult Stanley would never forget how, in the moment his deceitful guardian fled and the door slammed shut, he experienced for the first time the awful feeling of utter desolateness. The boy, who was then named John Rowlands, would go through life trying to hide the shame of the workhouse and the stigma of his illegitimate birth. After leaving the workhouse at age 15 and traveling to New Orleans, he began denying his Welsh roots and pretending to be an American, complete with the accent. He called himself Henry Morton Stanley and told of taking the name from his adoptive father, a wonderfully kind and hard-working cotton trader in New Orleans. In the tales he concocted about his adoptive family, Stanley claimed to be raised by parents who taught self-control. The dying words he ascribed to his fantasy mother were, Be a good boy. Moral resistance was a favorite subject with him, Stanley wrote of his fantasy father. He said the practice of it gave vigor to the will, which required it as much as the muscles. The will required to be strengthened to resist unholy desires and low passions, and was one of the best allies that conscience could have. Not surprisingly, this advice from an imaginary parent happened to jibe precisely with Stanley's own regimen for avoiding the vices of his real parents. At age 11, despite living in what could hardly be called luxurious conditions at the workhouse in Wales, he was already experimenting on will by imposing extra hardships on himself. I rose at midnight to wrestle in secret with my wicked self, and, while my schoolfellows sweetly reposed, I was on my knees, laying my heart bare before him who knows all things. I would promise to abstain from wishing for more food, and to show how I despise the stomach and its pains, I would divide one meal out of the three among my neighbors. Half my suet pudding should be given to folks, who was afflicted with greed, and, if ever I possessed anything that excited the envy of another, I would at once surrender it. Virtue, he discovered, 
took time. Often it appeared as though it were wholly useless to struggle against evil, yet there was an infinitesimal improvement in each stage. The character was becoming more and more developed. By his twenties, he was a successful war correspondent and preacher of self-discipline to his friends. When one of them suggested he take a vacation, he dismissed the idea with a wonderful bit of verbiage and self-importance. It is only by railway celerity that I can live. He wouldn't even be able to enjoy a vacation, he wrote to his friend, because his conscience would torment him for wasting time. Nothing could interfere with his goal. I mean by attention to my business, by self-denial, by indefatigable energy, to become, by this very business, my own master. But once he reached Africa, Stanley also came to recognize the limits of anyone's willpower. Although he credited his experiences there with ultimately strengthening him, he also saw the toll that Africa took on men unaccustomed to its rigors and temptations. It is difficult for anyone who has not undergone experiences similar to ours to understand the amount of self-control each had to exercise for 15 hours every day amid such surroundings as ours. He wrote about their passage through the dark Ituri forest. When Stanley first learned of some of the rear column's cruelties and depredations, he noted in his journal that most people would erroneously conclude that the men were originally wicked. People back in civilization, Stanley realized, couldn't imagine the changes undergone by the men since leaving England. At home, these men had no cause to show their natural savagery. They were suddenly transplanted to Africa and its miseries. They were deprived of butcher's meat and bread and wine, books, newspapers, the society and influence of the friends. Fever seized them, wrecked minds and bodies. Good nature was banished by anxiety. Pleasantness was eliminated by toil. Cheerfulness yielded to internal anguish until they became but shadows, morally and physically, of what they had been in English society. Stanley was describing what the economist George Lowenstein calls the hot-cold empathy gap, the inability during a cool, rational, peaceful moment to appreciate how we'll behave during the heat of passion and temptation. At home in England, the men may have coolly intended to behave in a virtuous manner, but they couldn't imagine how different their feelings would be in the jungle. The hot-cold empathy gap is still one of the most common challenges to self-control, albeit in less extreme versions. We deal with gaps more like the one observed by a friend of ours who grew up on a commune in Canada. She was the only child on the commune, mostly consisting of idealistic hippies. Among their ideals was to consume only the healthiest and most natural forms of food. Her mother, however, thought that a child ought to have cookies from the supermarket every now and then. For buying them, the mother had to endure lots of jokes and lectures about the evils of sugar, the perils of fattening junk food, the immorality of supporting international food corporations. The mother kept buying them anyway, but then faced another problem. The cookies kept disappearing. Late in the evening, after partaking of natural substances like wine and cannabis, the commune dwellers' willpower was depleted and their disapproval of corporate junk food was no match for their cravings for Oreos. Some parents have to hide cookies from their children. 
This mother found that her child was the only person to whom the location could be revealed. The cookies had to be hidden because the grown-up suffered from the hot-cold empathy gap. They denounced junk food by day without realizing how much they'd want those evil cookies once they were tired and stoned. In setting rules for how to behave in the future, you're often in a calm, cool state, so you make unrealistic commitments. It's really easy to agree to diet when you're not hungry, says Lowenstein, a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. And it's really easy to be sexually abstemious when you're not sexually aroused, as Lowenstein and Dan Ariely found by asking young heterosexual adult men some personal questions. If, say, they were attracted to a woman and she proposed a threesome with a man, would they do it? Could they imagine having sex with a woman who is 40 years older? Could they ever be attracted to a 12-year-old girl? To get a woman to have sex, would they falsely tell her they loved her? Would they keep trying after she said no? Would they try to get her drunk or give her a drug to lower her resistance? When the men answered these questions sitting by a computer in a laboratory, an eminently cold state, they honestly thought they would be quite unlikely ever to do any of those things. In another part of the experiment, however, the men were instructed to answer the questions while they were masturbating and in a state of high sexual arousal. In that hot state, they gave higher ratings to all those possibilities. What had seemed highly unlikely began to seem more within the realm of possibility. It was just an experiment, but it showed how the wilderness might find them out too. Turn up the heat, and the unthinkable becomes surprisingly thinkable. We said that willpower is humans' greatest strength, but the best strategy is not to rely on it in all situations. Save it for emergencies. As Stanley discovered, there are mental tricks that enable you to conserve willpower for those moments when it's indispensable. Paradoxically, these techniques require willpower to implement, but in the long run, they leave you less depleted for those moments when it takes a strong core to survive.